I'm curious about the future. I like to say I'm a dabbling futurist. I like to think about what could happen and delve into all these possibilities. That curious mindset gives you a little bit more courage or strength to take that leap. But it is scary. There has to be acknowledgement that it's okay to feel an element of fear and that fear is also very natural. The trick is to take that fear and translate it into something powerful and motivating. As humans, we are always curious about the answers to questions. So I don't think that's necessarily unique. I think maybe it comes in about how to translate that curiosity into something actionable. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is leveraging collaboration, innovation, and creativity as an associate general counsel at McKinsey. Through her work, she provides leadership, guidance, and legal support to McKinsey's internal functions and client-serving teams on data risk and data management issues. Please welcome our next Lawyer Who Leads and a fellow Cardozo alum, Stephanie Spangler. Stephanie, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here, and it's such an honor. So I love being able to reconnect with old law school friends, and it makes hosting this podcast so much more meaningful when that happens. A lot has happened since our law school days, and I actually can't wait to get into that. But before we do so, I'd like to ask, what has been your favorite moment so far today? Today? Just in this day? Just today. My favorite moment so far today is getting to talk to you honestly, and getting to be part of this amazing Lawyers Who Leave podcast. I am a subscriber, a follower of this podcast. You've had amazing guests. I've learned a lot from their experiences, and I, I feel honored to be able to contribute to that ongoing dialogue. So this is an event for me. So thank you. Oh, Stephanie, thank you. You're making me so happy right now. That's very nice. And I really appreciate you being on the show. But it's, no, it's true. So take that relish in it. You're doing like a, a great, wonderful thing. You're giving attorneys a platform to talk about things that we don't often get to talk about on this kind of scale. So thank you. I know that there's so much that you're going to be able to contribute today. So let's start with after law school. Take me through that journey. How did you get to where you are today? I love that question because you have a journey in the question. It truly was a journey for me, and I still feel that my career trajectory is just the completion of a journey. Post-law school, as you can recall, it was a very tumultuous time in the job market. This is a story that I think a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to. There was a lot of uncertainty. People were grabbing at any opportunity possible, right? Whatever opportunity presented itself. And there's different pressures that different people had. I personally had the pressures of school loans thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? How am I going to pay back this very large sum of money that going into law school was just a number on a page or on a screen? And now it was a true and real obligation. After law school, I actually joined Practical Law Company. It wasn't legal practice. It was just using my legal know-how in a way that made legalese translatable and transferable in a business context. So I joined the IP team. I got to translate materials and try to make products for lawyers, which was a very strange thing for me in the sense that I've never thought about productizing 
the law before. At the time, I thought, oh, I don't know if this is a great way to start my legal career. This doesn't seem to be the normal path. But I do remember, and I still follow this, telling myself you have to be creative. So things are not always going to be as you project, as you prepare for, and truly things will not be that way. That's what life is. So you have to be creative about how you're going to get through these challenging times. I also don't like to think about it as challenges. I like to think about them as opportunities for solutions. So you just have to reframe it for yourself. At the time, it was really hard for me to reframe this for myself. You just think of all the things that you didn't achieve when you thought you should be. But in hindsight, it was one of the best things that happened to me because it gave me training on how to translate legalese for non-legal minds, how to operationalize these things and to have that be actionable. And it's something that I have used in every step of my career journey. How did you find this specific job? I will just say LinkedIn, but I honestly don't remember. LinkedIn is my go-to for any job opportunity. Me too. Right? It's like leverage LinkedIn and leverage your networks. But I always leverage my networks through my LinkedIn network. That's our current day Rolodex. I had no connections there, personal connections there, but I was able to get a foot in the door and find a place there. But LinkedIn. Yeah. I agree 100%. I actually had the same conversation with another guest, Davika Tandon. Yeah. So you, yeah. you listened and her and I are huge fans too. I think we shouldn't create like a blurs of LinkedIn fan club. I would follow that group. I love that episode because at the end, when you asked her like, how do we get in touch with you? I think we know it's like <laughs> reach out to me on LinkedIn. Exactly. <laughs> that was a good kind of bookend to the whole episode. Absolutely. Thank you. So you're at Practical Law, working in the IP department. You're learning all these skills, but you're really questioning whether this is the right path. How long were you there and what made you decide that you still wanted to go back to the practice itself? I'm definitely going to get my dates wrong, but I think I was up practical law for about nine months or so. So it wasn't that long of a time period. I definitely did see that as a detour on my journey at the time. Although, like I said, I don't necessarily view it as that now. I see it just as part of the journey and part of the process. So for me at the time, it was how to get back on track, how to get back on that main road that I think I should be on. And for me, that was always private practice in my mind. There's a lot of different reasons for that mainly because one, I just didn't know any better. And two, it's what I thought because that's what we were told and taught. I actually ended up joining a law firm called Yoon and Kim that focused on servicing the Korean American business community in New York City. And it was a very small firm, but as a result, I was able to get a lot of really great experience very quickly. I got to second chair trial that ended up in a seven-figure verdict in favor of our client. And it felt like the right next step at the time. So how long were you at the firm for? I was at the firm for about two years. And I recognized the need to change because it was a small firm and it felt too small for me at the time. And that's not to cast any judgments on small because I think it is very suitable for many people. For example, not that I have plans to go into private practice, but I could definitely see myself being suited for something like that where you're running your own shop and building out teams in that way. At the time, I just felt like I wanted to try something different. And those opportunities were more readily available in a larger firm. What specifically would you say you needed more of? What did you think a larger law firm was going to give you? 
exposure to just different things. So the smaller firm, it was just based in New York City. This one was based in Atlanta, but it had a national reach. It ended up being fortuitous that I had joined because I actually ended up moving to San Francisco due to my husband's job at the time. But it coincidentally worked out for me because we happened to have a San Francisco office. So there's things like that were certainly beneficial. I don't know. It just felt like the right next thing to do. And that is very characteristic of things that I have done in my journey is to just take a leap of faith and try it out. What's the worst that could happen? I might not know what it really looks like on the other side, but let's try it. I love that because I think there's a tendency for lawyers to be risk averse. When I meet lawyers that are willing to take those leaps and willing to take those chances, it's interesting and very rare. Where do you think that comes from? I think it just comes from my innate curiosity. I'm a very curious person. I'm always trying to learn other people's points of view, motivations, why things are certain ways. I'm also curious about the future. I like to say I'm a dabbling futurist, right? I like to think about what could happen and delve into all these possibilities. That just naturally curious mindset gives you a little bit more courage or strength to take that leap. I love that. But it is scary, right? I think there has to be acknowledgement that in that process, that it's okay to feel an element of fear. And that fear is also very natural. The trick is to take that fear and translate it into something really powerful and motivating. I think as humans, we are always curious about the answers to questions. So I don't think that's necessarily unique. I think personality-wise, maybe it comes in about how to translate that curiosity into something actionable. Using it to create something actionable while also being forgiving of the fear that comes in. And like you said, translating that and allowing that to like feed into the curiosity versus outweigh it. Absolutely. And this is something I'm thinking about even in my current role is Letting yourself feel that fear, letting yourself fail, letting yourself make mistakes because there's so much career growth that, that can come from it. There's so much learning that can come from it. And you just end up being a better lawyer because of it. It's letting yourself fail, be okay with that. But it's also letting your team members and people that you work with also know that it's okay if they fail too. Let's try something together. Let's figure out how to do something. It might not work, but let's try it out. If it fails, We'll iterate, we'll figure out a better way to do it, and we'll do it together. So really have this true collaboration approach where we can give permission to fail. And really amazing things can come of that. I agree. How do you empower your team to do that? I think you have to acknowledge them first and foremost. Just say, I know we all want to get this right. We're human. We may not get this perfect, and let's all be okay with that. And then be encouraging. Okay, how close to perfect can we be? Let's brainstorm on this. What are the solutions that we could come up with together? Have we thought about all the different points of view? I think inviting that dialogue helps to encourage your team members to vocalize what they're thinking. Because I think the worst thing that could happen is someone has this really good idea, a really good solution to the problem, but they're just feeling shy about vocalizing it. So I think allowing that space for people to engage in that dialogue. What does that space look like for you? A meeting? Is that a, a monthly rhythm? I have dug deep into the collaboration tools that have birthed out of the pandemic. I personally am on Zoom for the majority of the day. So you have video engagement, 
these are sometimes in 30 minute increments where we're going to have to go quickly, but that's an opportunity where you can at least virtually face to face problem solve with your colleagues. I'm an avid Slack user. I love Slack. We use Slack a lot. I'm a, a big emojis person to get my point across. And I say that kind of jokingly, but there is something to be said for being playful and a, like playful with purpose. That's a phrase that's kicked around a lot. It's funny. When emojis first came out, I was like, how could you ever use this in a professional setting? But over time, as we started to get more used to communications via text-driven stuff, we also started to realize how easy it is to misinterpret the tone of somebody's words. And I think the emoji really provides that layer to be like, I'm saying this, but I'm saying it in this way. I'm being playful. I'm being encouraging. I'm being inspirational. Like, don't take this too seriously or take this in a way that's positive versus negative. So I agree. And I think that it's great that it's becoming more normalized in a professional setting. Yeah. I don't know. It also makes work more fun if you can just embed that into your work. And certainly emojis are not appropriate in certain emails that you may be writing and things like that. But in terms of collaboration, problem solving and working through things, absolutely. And it's also efficient, right? If someone's sending me a a message on Slack and I just want to let them know that I'm grateful for their message. I can just hit my little thank you emoji. Or if I'm looking at something, I can click on my little eyeballs emoji. And it's just a more efficient way to communicate since we are doing so in a virtual environment for most of us. There's like the huddle tool on Slack I use from time to time. So when you don't want the video, because we all suffer from Zoom fatigue at some point in our day, sometimes it's just nice to have a voice-to-voice quick chat and then you can work through problems like very efficiently in that way. So let's go back to this collaboration concept. One of the things that we talked about when we first started catching up before this recording was that you were focusing on collaboration opportunities both within your department as well as thinking about how to replicate these collaboration opportunities outside of the department. I'd love for you to share this because I was pretty blown away with how you do this at McKinsey. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's such a great question, and I hope I can speak intelligently about it because there's a lot of different facets to it. But at a high level, I was thinking more about my role at McKinsey, this being my first in-house experience. It's a very different role from being in private practice. In our legal department, and I would say just generally at McKinsey, there is ongoing collaboration and an ongoing need for collaboration. And it was at a level that just really blew my mind coming from private practice where I felt more siloed because there was, in often cases, just a certain type of information I really needed to know. It's one reason why I wanted to go in-house because I wanted to know more of the business. I wanted to know more of the impact of what my legal advice was going to have like more broadly. And you just don't get that visibility when you're in private practice. So stepping into this in-house role and having my just mind blown away about what the potential opportunities were to meet and work with other people was really exciting. And then I thought about it more, trying to distill it more about what does that actually look like for me in my day-to-day? So I work with a team that's fairly small, but we're part of a larger team that's part of a larger, it's concentric circles, right? There's a lot of information that's being shared And it made me think about the opportunity that's there. There's so many people part of this network now, but how do we work together in a more efficient way? How can we really understand what we know? A lot of times you just don't know what your colleague knows, right? Because we just don't have time to communicate all those things. And then how can we use that to make a broader impact? So the way that I saw that for myself was 
being intentional, identify who I need to know, who knows what, who can help me with this problem. For example, I might lean on my cyber legal colleagues if it's related to a cybersecurity issue that I may not have the depth of expertise that they would have. So understanding when to pull in those colleagues to efficiently solve a problem was something that I could do in my day to day. Another would be transparency and feedback. And so that means what kind of impact your decisions and your guidance is really making. And I think different companies and organizations will be built out differently and maybe more supportive to that kind of visibility. Sometimes it might take a little more effort or lift and sometimes maybe not. But I think the point is recognizing that should be a component. I can't work with you if I don't know what you're doing and if I don't know how what I'm saying is helping you or hurting you or doing nothing. So really understanding what that is. What was your strategy when you first started at McKinsey, identifying all the stakeholders, what they knew and when to pull them in? Take me through a strategy like that. So our legal department has done a really amazing job of having online materials that really lays out the structure and the roles of the different teams. Also, I just asked a lot of questions, but I also had the support from my managing council, my leadership, that it's okay to ask questions. This is acknowledgement among who I consider to be very seasoned people in the department saying, I don't know. Things are like moving at such a fast pace. I don't know. So it's okay to ask questions. And I would see them role model that. I would see them ask questions to what seems like very 101 and basic, but it actually wasn't right because of the fact that things are inherently changing all the time. No question's a dumb question. It goes back to that curious mindset. Always be asking questions, be curious, like why are we doing it this way? Who knows this? And do we really need to bring this person in? But we really have an environment where we encourage asking questions and we really support curiosity in that way. I like this idea of role modeling. Is that a, a very prevalent thing at McKinsey? I think so. It's something I never thought about before joining McKinsey. This notion of how can we as attorneys be a role model to others? So that could be for other colleagues within the legal department. It could be with our stakeholders within the firm. It could be our clients. So when they look at you and what you're doing, are you engaging in activities and behaviors that are something a role model would be doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to take a step back for a second because I want to give people context for actually what you do. Just give me a brief summary of what is the specific work that you do at McKinsey? Yeah, I'm part of our data management legal team. It's a really uniquely situated team. There's not many companies and organizations that have a dedicated data management legal team. We basically help to advise McKinsey, our internal firm functions and stakeholders on data risk and data management issues. We can also advise on our consulting services teams, although that's not the larger portion of my day-to-day. -day. Yeah, and I'm assuming a lot of these stakeholders are not lawyers. Correct. And so that's where your PLC kind of experience really comes into play, the ability to break down that legalese to other stakeholders. Yep, exactly. And it seems like data risk and management is, like you said, it's changing all the time to the point where you guys are very comfortable with saying, you know what, we don't know. We're going to ask questions. We're going to constantly be curious. One of the things that I know I've seen you write about and we've talked about is this idea of seeing around the corner, this idea of what's next. It also really aligns with what you said earlier, which is you like to be a dabbling futurist. I love that. So talk to me about what does it mean to see around a corner? I think it means to be prospective rather than responsive or maybe adaptive. But the situation that 
I would like to avoid is having this terrible catastrophe happen and think there could have been things that we could have done to prevent that. What we've been thinking about is, especially with emerging technologies, because there's a lot of unknowns there, right? There's draft regulation, there's things that are in the works, there may be even laws on the books, but the interpretation of then how it really plays out is unknown. So where we like to position ourselves is to say, okay, where do we see all this law and regulation and these regulatory frameworks? Where do we see that trending? How can we predict the future and what this future legal and regulatory world looks like with regards to data, security, and what can we do right now to prepare for that? Can we build in, although they may not currently today be legal requirements, can we build in best practices that are going to prepare us and our teams for working in this new, not so far away future? So that's what we mean by seeing around the corner. And a group of us have gotten together and developed this program, which we call Tech Summits. And the idea is every quarter, lawyers can sit down and talk tech law and talk about issues that we're seeing currently that we might need to problem solve together or talk through, but also like, where are we seeing this going? Sometimes they're just more thought experiment type of activities. But from these conversations, we're building out a different way to think, a different way to think about risk and legal requirements in a different way that I think is actually more useful to the business because you're building out business solutions that work for the business that sitting here today may not have this legal requirement, but in the very near future, you want to be able to position the business as we've actually already accounted for all these changes that are happening. It's already built in. And so the shift to the business isn't as large, right? It's going on over time rather than just a light switch where it's, oh gosh, now we need to change. I want to hone in on this thought experiment, these tech summits. Yeah. So we have a tech summit, Steerco. It's a small group of the leadership from the legal department. And I'm one of them who are really pushing and driving these events to happen, but also not just the events themselves, but really how are we going to drive impact from these events? What are we going to do with the knowledge and the know-how obtained from the brainstorming event or roundtable discussion or whatever it happens to be? The actual structure of it is very flexible. There's not like a specific model for it other than it's a day where we all come together. How many people is this? Less than we have 60 globally. So it really is voluntary, right? It's if you have an interest in technology law and how that's going to impact your work, which there will be some aspect of your work that will be impacted. But if you're interested, the hope is that we can get folks in the room who are not only interested, but also can contribute like their perspective. So it really is a dialogue and it doesn't end on that day. We have built out kind of work streams. We call them sprint squads. So if there's a topic that you're really interested in, like the metaverse and how this is going to impact us or the world, or I don't know, maybe you just want to delve deeper into that topic, you can form a sprint squad and for the next quarter, dig deeper. It's really up to you. The whole idea is to give people an opportunity and a platform to be able to engage, to be curious, and then decide for themselves how they're going to implement that into their day-to-day. And some topics may not be something that can be integrated today. Maybe it's something that's a couple years away, but with how fast technology develops, the way that I see it is that it's never too early to start because you will be confronted with a lot of these questions and you just don't want to be caught on your heels. Yeah. So how does that work? Let's say I'm part of McKinsey. I see this tech summit. I'm really excited. I go there. 
I say, hey, all this data that's being collected, what if I'm working out in an app that's on the metaverse and now it has my heartbeat and all of this other data about my physical well-being? I'd love to go on a work stream sprint and further understand that. How does that work? How is that facilitated? Where do we go from there? You would be perfect for one of these sprint squads. I love these questions you're asking. It's really up to you. It's what you want to do. We really want to empower our colleagues to do whatever it is that they want with it. So maybe it's your own personal study and you honestly don't do anything with it. Like for me, I write a blog about it. I just came out with a big Q&A with Janice Swong, who was a guest speaker at one of the tech summits. We continue the conversation that she started with us about data stewardship frameworks, which feels very theoretical in some ways, but I just feel like this is something that's going to be something we're going to need to encounter to support our business colleagues in the very near term. So you can turn into blog posts if you want to go on a podcast. It's really what makes sense for you on your journey. We're all about empowerment and it's what makes sense for you. And each person's journey is different. Yeah, it's an interesting approach to professional development because it's it's not just, and I come from an online education environment and I know that there's a lot of value in online education, but it's not just watching a video. It's not just attending a summit. It's being able to then take the information that you want and actually apply it in some way. And having an organization that supports that and provides language, a title to it, and gives a lot of benefit to the organization because you have all of these employees that are just thinking about the future and trying to figure out what the next thing is. It's really cool. It's so cool. And hearing what you're saying is making me think about the importance that we have on like thought partnership and thought leadership. I want to view myself as someone that anyone, lawyer or not, can go to for ideas, knowing that I have thoughtfully taken the time to think about the challenges or risks or what have you. And we can't necessarily do that unless we have a dialogue about it, unless there's a platform for this, unless we let our colleagues know that this is going on. And so this is certainly one way to do it that really positions me as a lawyer in a great place because I'm not only getting the know-how from our guest speaker technologist who came and explained the technology, I have this baseline of these like great legal minds that I've been talking to that are now in my brain because I've had these conversations or we have compiled resources that go along with these summits. I've just been in this knowledge space, so I'm ready. I'm ready when someone needs that thought partner or I'm ready when someone's really trying to lean on some thought leadership, thinking more prospectively. It's, yeah, to your point, it's a very engaging way to approach professional development. This is only my first in-house experience, but I'd like to think that this is unique to our legal department and something that we do well. And we want to keep improving on it. We want to keep figuring out better ways to do it. I'm always thinking about how could we improve? And so always thinking about how to do that better, how to support our colleagues better for their professional development journeys. How I'll finish on the tech summit because we have so many more things to talk about, but it's so interesting to me that I can't stop. I want our listeners who are looking to potentially replicate this within their own organizations or their own law firms, I want them to better understand the mechanics or what you've learned works or doesn't work. How do you invite people? How are they able to engage? How are the topics identified? How does that work if someone else wanted to replicate this within their own organization? I love this question. If someone wants to replicate, have them contact me. I know I'll share my info <laughs> afterwards, but this is something that we've been thinking about too. And in terms of our approach and thinking, 
how can we make a bigger impact too? How can we help support our other colleagues? This is something that we're problem solving now, trying to work through and figure out like a best way to do it. So I would actually welcome anyone who's interested in this approach to definitely reach out to me because just because it works a certain way where I am doesn't necessarily mean it'll work everywhere. But my guess is that we've built out an approach that'll be really helpful for the technologically curious, for lawyers that really want to be forward thinking about emerging technologies and innovation, what kind of impact that's going to have on their work and their organizations. Yeah. And I think you can apply outside of tech too, regardless of what, whether you're a law firm to, I don't know, a cupcake shop, right? There's always room for people to come together and talk about what the future holds. What are we seeing? What are people talking about? What could be? And being able to create and facilitate a space where people are talking about it. That's so right. And I'm glad you brought that up because at the core of what the Tech Summit is, a design thinking, human-centered approach. And I think in your question of how do you even get the ideas for what topics to talk about, sometimes it's going through that kind of design thinking approach and really asking what do our users here, it would be our stakeholders, what is it that they're asking? What is it that they're doing? What is it that they're interested in? And how can I service that? It's like constantly evolving and changing. This idea started as this like tiny little nugget between a much smaller group of people that has just flourished because there's a true need for lawyers to just have the opportunity to dive into these issues. Absolutely. So I'm going to go into some rapid fire questions for you because there's so many things okay. that I'm still like oh, very excited okay. to ask you about. I just want to close that loop between when you were in private practice and then when you moved in-house. What projected you in-house? What did that look like? How did you do it? The rapid fire answer is the pandemic. I was always thinking that in-house would be a possible opportunity for me, but the pandemic really invigorated that drive. I just couldn't practice the way that I wanted to practice. I was doing IP litigation and I couldn't do that while also caring for a COVID baby. I had my second child the September before lockdown while also caring for my kindergartner at the time who, for parents who had any school-age child at the time knows, there was this either all remote or this hybrid approach to school with also my wonderful husband, who had just co-founded a startup. There was a lot of things going on and I just didn't feel like I had the flexibility to accommodate all those things. So I was looking for a move in house and in particular McKinsey's a place that's very, because we're global, there's always someone in some time zone that's asleep and awake at the same time. We have constant coverage. It just has this built-in flexibility to accommodate the challenges that the pandemic brought us that just made so much sense for me personally, but also professionally. What does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law means using your unique legal capability to influence, challenge, and guide for good. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? This is a really good question. Only one thing? That's that's literally what everyone says when I first ask them. One thing? (laughs) Be open to alternative solutions. I think we have a way we work as a legal profession that we think is the right way. And I don't think that's always necessarily the case. It's things like the pandemic happening. It's things like the technological innovation that's happening that's driving different types of human behaviors and needs that are going to continuously challenge in some ways an archaic approach to practicing law. And 
I have faith in our profession that we can do better. And I will do my little part to contribute to that. And mine's just the little part. It's not the only way and it's certainly not the right way. I don't think there's any right way. But I think if we are more open to ideas, we can really make the profession something where we're really servicing a broad population of people who need it, not just a select few. It's a great answer. What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? They think I only do data privacy, meaning they think I'm only focused on data protection for data subjects. There's a component of that, but it's much broader than that. What are some of the other aspects of it? I mean, you talked about data stewardship, which is so interesting. Can you actually share that for a second, what that is? Because I I found that so fascinating. It's a concept that's related to just data intermediaries more broadly. So basically having a third party to help facilitate the transaction between the data subject, the individual or company giving their data to all the other data participants in that data ecosystem. So if someone wants to use your data, you're having this kind of intermediary to help facilitate that exchange to ensure that data is only being used for the approved purpose and that whatever constraints the data subject wants on that is there. It's also hoping to enable the sharing of that data. So you don't want to just use it as just a blocker when it doesn't necessarily need to be. The data stewardship model comes in with things like data trusts, where you actually have an entity that has a fiduciary obligation to ensure that the rules of data sharing are followed, which I feel like lawyers can really get into that because there's just a lot there, right? When you are imposing a fiduciary duty on the exchange and transfer of data, that's like a very kind of cool and exciting thing, but also a ripe area to get lawyers involved in the development of that, of what that actually looks like. Yeah, because lawyers have such a good established understanding of fiduciary duty that they can really take that foundation and then run with it and see how it applies to these kind of new concepts like data stewardship. That is so cool and interesting. And what a great space for people to start exploring. So what is a piece of practical advice to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in the legal world looking to follow your lead. Be curious, be ambitious, but realistic, and be compassionate. Those are things that I try to follow, and I use it as a North Star. It's certainly something that giving yourself permission to fail, I don't think I achieve that every day, but it's something I strive for. What is your favorite self-care practice? I run in Prospect Park, so I try to run at least two times a week. If I can run three times a week. I give myself a huge pat on the back, but I just need to get outside, be in semi-nature. It's like the most nature I can access in New York City, get my vitamin D and get the endorphins going because it's just such a different day that I have if I can start my day with. It doesn't have to be a crazy ride, but just something to get the blood flowing. It's It really helps me be able to use my brain power a little better. Moving is so important, although I have to say I'm super envious of the runners. Like you're definitely the person that's running by and I'm like, oh, my bad knees. I can't do it, but good for you. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I want to do it so bad, but I just can't. <laughs> I know. But there's just to your point, it's fine what you like, whatever totally. the thing is yeah. for self-care and then just do that thing. Just for me, I know myself. It has to be something that's going to get those endorphins going, but it could be much more relaxed and 
chill than that. I, I, I wasn't joking earlier when I was talking about the fact that I do work out in the metaverse. I have an Oculus. I use Supernatural. I very much enjoy it. The endorphins come from the music, from the movement. You can truly find your very specific niche and how you want to get those endorphins going. That's awesome. <laughs> it's the only VR technology that I've really come into contact with that was both accessible and quality VR. But I'm open to other technologies. We'll see what McKinsey publishes on various technologies. I'll keep my eye out. Definitely. What challenge in your life shaped you the most? The challenge in my life that shaped me the most was, sorry, I'm going to get emotional, but it's okay. Learning of my mother's cancer diagnosis while I was literally on the plane about to head for a deposition for work. That moment was completely life-changing for me. It gave me a completely different perspective on the value of life, on the value of the time that we have, and on the value we're placing on ourselves to what kind of impact we want to have in this world. Because life is so short. Thank you for being vulnerable in this moment and sharing that. Thank you for letting me honor her in that way. What was her name? Michelle. Melissa to Michelle. Thank you. Absolutely. It's very easy for us to care about things that in the larger picture shouldn't really matter. Like I have these moments, these sparks where I'm like, oh, I see it now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me anymore. I, what really matters are my children, my loved ones, the purpose, the things that I really want to do. I definitely have to check in with myself to get things back into perspective. In other words, you feel yourself getting stressed in a certain way that doesn't feel right. You feel yourself getting pulled in different directions. Or maybe you just have an explosion where you're just like, I can't do this. When those moments happen, that is a very clear signal to me that my priorities are misaligned and I need to do some course correction for myself. And to think, is this something I should be dedicating my time and energy to? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. But the fact that I'm having a physiological response to something tells you you have to be aware. You have to listen to yourself. As we each have gone through our own different challenges and we've responded in different ways, we have learned how we respond and what we need from that. We each have our own thing that's beneficial to us. We just have to recognize it and remind ourselves of that. I go through course corrections all the time. I went through a course correction a couple of weeks ago. It's okay. Oh, I lost sight of things and I was just piling on too much. I was trying to make everyone happy. It's telling yourself it's okay to manage expectations. And I do that in my work in a very like constructive and collaborative way. I reach out to folks. This deadline that we talked about, I'm going to have to need to adjust because of X, Y, Z, but being clear, transparent about why and getting the other person on board and understanding why we're not going to be able to meet this deadline, for example. Managing those expectations is part of how I can prioritize the things that I really need to prioritize. I, I think that's really important. And it, it's something that I need to personally do more of. I think that a lot of people can gain value in this idea of checking in and not ignoring, like you said, those physiological responses. I think it's easy for me sometimes to feel those things and then suppress it until it becomes so intense that I'm like, whoa, why do I feel this way? Why is everything stressing me out? Why does everything feel so overwhelming? Instead being like, oh, I feel this feeling. Why am I feeling it? Let me assess what's going on here and let me reflect on what are the things that I can do, whether that's reprioritizing the way I'm thinking about something or my day or my deadlines, giving yourself that pause. And I think the more you do that, it's like a muscle, the better you get at it. It's great that you do that. And I think it's like very important for all of us to take those pauses, not just every once in a while, but like 
every time we have those signals. Yeah. And that's such a good approach in your business or legal role or wherever you're sitting. It's transferable into your personal, I don't know, role. (laughs) It's the wrong word, but this blend of work and personal life is so gray. It's such a gray area now, especially since a lot of us knowledge workers are working from home or working remotely. We have to just be more intentional about what that is. But the cool thing that I realized was that in my work life, I'm very intentional about what my goals are, my development track. It might change, but at least I sit down and I write it down and I talk about it with others and I'm accountable for it. Do we do those same things in our personal life? I certainly did it. And it's something that I've been thinking about how to transfer these really great approaches and skills we have in our work life and do it in our personal life. I think that'll help also reframe our priorities. They can be complementary. They really can. There's so many skills that we learn, strategic planning, thinking about core values, thinking about our mission. We think about that so deeply in our professional lives, but those are such important things to consider in our personal lives. What are our core values personally? What is our mission? Who are the people we want to surround ourselves with? Those are things that are so transferable, and yet we don't leverage those tools as much as maybe we should in helping guide our larger life goals. That And profession is just a piece of that. I remember once the CEO of Lawline, David Schnurman, sat a bunch of us down, and he had this Mad Libs where you can say, in five years, I will wake up in blank and I will eat blank. Then I will spend the next few hours doing blank. It went on and on and it helped you in a fun way, create a picture of what your day would look like five years from now. And then it gave you that goal. So for me, it was like, I wake up, I eat an egg white omelet with lots of vegetables and then I dance. And after I dance, I sit and I write and I look out onto a beach. There was all these things that, like you said, they can change, but it gave me an idea of what my ideal future could look like. And then allowed me to plan for that. I want to do this Mad Libs again. I need to find it. It's a great approach. And now look at you. You're hosting a podcast. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. I I would like to say that I planned that, but I did not. I have strategically focused on this podcast, but it wasn't something that I knew I would be doing five years ago for sure. But that's good. You want to be open to what opportunities come your way because it's always great to have a game plan, but you also need to know when to pivot. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because I always thought I need to be writing and I love writing, still love to do it. But being able to pivot and say you can still maintain this level of storytelling through podcasting and be able to fulfill that desire. So, yes, that pivoting is key. Definitely. I want to thank you so much for being here, for sharing so much expertise, so much of your life, your journey. If someone wanted to reach out, how can they connect with you? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And when they do, because I hope your listeners will, make sure that they let me know that they heard me on your podcast. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. 
Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off LawLine's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out LawLine for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.